0: Welcome folks to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam kasten Smith, and I will be your host today. And it feels weird not to jump into the next line of joining me today is Will Bushman. But Will's not here. He's got a sick little girl today. So he is at home being a good dad. And so we are going to continue into episode number seven in our series, America, how did we get here? And today we're going to be talking about the collapse of the church and how it walked away from biblical truths right at the time when the nation needed the church to be salt most. And so this is gonna be the period that comes right around the turn uh, from the 19th century to the 20th century. And how did that happen? Like how did we get to the place where society just began embracing all of these outrageous moral evils and the collapse of of who we had been as a nation and our, our central ideals. And so this episode is going to be a little bit more diving into some of the theological, the religious, and and how that was manifesting itself out into the culture. And so there's not going to be you know the the great genocides or the <laughs> the the terrible things, but it's so fascinating to watch how all of this came about. Germany and France have contributed quite a bit uh, to the problems. The philosophers that those nations were generating uh, were really on the side of the Machiavelli train coming out of that great you know the two trains that came out of the Roman Catholic Church, and we're walking away from more of the luther faithful to the scriptures you know holding that up as the highest form of truth and and guidance for humanity well the french and the and the germans began to say no 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 man can reason himself into you know this kind of more utopian existence we don't need god we're getting too smart to believe any of that stuff anymore and so you started seeing like a lot of stuff was coming out of France and Germany. And so just just to pause and to look at Germany at the beginning of this, because they are going to be responsible largely for this great movement, this powerful movement that's going to decimate the church with their theological liberalism. And so I want to go like, remember 1840s? You have Germany or Prussia, who's like ex- they're exporting their model of compulsory government schools to America. That's coming out of Germany. And then in the 1850s, you have Karl Marx that's exporting the Communist Manifesto out of Germany and writing for one of our largest newspapers. And you find the first example of state socialism that comes in the 1880s. That's coming out of Germany. And then when you get to the 1930s and 40s, you find you know Germany doing these horrific evils and so you find that germany is moving in the opposite direction of the principles of america's founding remember that our that our liberties come from god that we believe in moral absolutes that are given to us from a higher source that we we believe that the individual needs to be protected from the collective you can not empower the government to stamp out individuals or take away individual rights because they come from God, right? Those rights come from God. And finally, limited government. So like we wanted limited government all through that region, Germany and France are just constantly unleashing. Remember the Leviathan, this government that begins to consume people and bring great misery upon society And so then we talked about how America started drifting and and flirting with some of those philosophies. And so then I want to stop and ask the question, like, why was Germany producing all of this? Well, the answer is just prior to all of that stuff, in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, Germany had produced one of the Enlightenment's most famous philosophers, if not the most famous. His name was Immanuel Kant. He's known as the father of modern philosophy. A lot of people would say that he was the most influential philosopher of the Enlightenment. And so, what did this guy teach people? Well, he taught them that they can only have knowledge of things if they can experience them with their senses, you know, the natural world, but not the supernatural world. He argued that humanity could you know develop ethics just based on human reason not apart from the bible which by the way is you know you can look at the natural order of things and kind of come to the conclusion of what morality is based on the way that nature is designed that's true but then he began to say well we can set aside this supernatural teaching that comes from the scriptures and put greater emphasis on our ability to reason our way to morality well The problem with that, as we'll see in in the coming centuries, is you you have a lot of different people who can reason their way and think, well, you know, if Darwinism is true, let's go ahead and speed up the process of human evolution by eugenics or a Holocaust or whatever. And so human reason is very dangerous when it comes to determining morality. We found that out, but this is what Kant wanted to do was to say, no, 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 no. Reason can give us all this stuff. We don't need the Bible. And so according to Kant, you could only gain a vague idea of the truth, right? Like an intuition based on your experience of senses and perception and maybe what you see or read or something like that. But you could not gain a true grasp on objective reality, like no absolute truth. You can't claim something is 100% absolute true because there's no way in your human senses that you can totally understand every element of a thing, right? And so, well, if you take away the idea that there is a supernatural higher being who is delivering truth to us and that truth is entirely subjective to the human, you know, Kant's got a point. But you have to rid the world of the supernatural in order to get there. And so what the Christian would say is, no, 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 we believe that we can receive absolute truth from the voice, from the authority of the one who is above all of the world. And so the enlightenment started coming and saying, no, 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 everything we get to is going to come from human reason. And so an easy way to remember Kant is you can't know the absolute truth. See, like if Will was here, he would probably press the button that goes, wah, 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 but you can't know the absolute truth it's all an internal experience so in 1781 just to give you an idea of some of the stuff that he would say kant publishes most famous work it's called a critique of pure reason you can you can get it it's a real page turner uh, and he writes all our knowledge begins with the senses you hear the difference like what would the christian say well the christian would say no no Our knowledge, true knowledge, begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with a reverence in the scriptures, an understanding that this word is authoritative for all of life. Well, no, for Kant, all of our knowledge begins with the senses, then proceeds to the understanding and ends with reason. And so, like, I mean, he he talks about religion, and this is going to become massively influential in the German society. He, He says this. He writes an essay called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. Like, you hear that? So the the Reformation is what? Scripture alone, right? So he writes an essay, seems like a subtle jab at the Reformation and Luther. And he says, no, 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 here's the essay. Religion within the limits of reason alone. In other words, it's not scripture alone that's going to bring its perspective onto humanity. No, 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 it's going to be reason alone that then judges religion. (laughs) So all the authorities are getting flipped upside down. And so what does he do? He rejects the virgin birth. He rejects supernatural miracles, he rejects the resurrection, he rejects the the substitutionary atonement of the cross. And he believes that Christians pay for their own sins by leaving their old ways and living a new life of of suffering and self-denial and and getting rid of all the old impulses, right? Like as you suffer in that new life, you're paying for all of your old sins. Well, that's a radical departure from the Christian understanding of atonement and original sin and all of that. So Kant actually rejected atheism. uh, According to him, like he wrote, he said, you know, reason is going to show you a moral design to the universe. And if there's a design, there has to be a God. Like he wrote morality leads inevitably to religion. Like it shows design. Of course, there has to be a God. Look at the world. There's a moral design to it, but his philosophy sought to gut the essential foundations of Christianity. Like he essentially reduces Jesus to a role model, like who's who's shown us how to find freedom from our sinful behaviors. And like he spoke of the battle between Jesus and Satan, good and evil, as, as, as an example, as a pattern that has to be internalized in us so that we have the experience of it internally. And then listen to what he wrote because it, it just – it sucks all the hope out of the gospel. It sucks all the power out of the gospel, if this is true. He says, once this vivid mode of representation is divested of its mystical veil, its meaning is this, that there exists absolutely no salvation for man apart from the sincerest adoption of genuinely moral principles into his disposition. What is he saying? There is no atonement that saves you. There is no savior that ultimately is responsible for your salvation. You got to go earn it. You better be good enough. You need to adopt genuinely moral principles and that was the source of salvation. And so, in this era, you know, the monarchs in Germany and all through all through Europe, the Catholic Church, you know, they did a terrible job at refuting these ideas with compelling arguments from the truth. And so what they would do is uh, you said something I disagree with? Well, you're banned. You know, and, and they would ban the books, and it, and it all depend on who was in power whether people could read your books or not. And it was like playing theological whack-a-mole, rather than showing the inherent folly that are baked into these sorts of ideas. And so eventually, like here's the sad part: eventually, the universities and seminaries of Luther's homeland in Germany began to gobble up these Enlightenment philosophies and the German Church was overrun with theological liberalism. Like, you don't have to believe any of the core tenets of the faith anymore. And Christianity just became this nebulous idea of whatever you wanted to make it. You know, it was the cafeteria approach to faith. Like, yeah, I believe that, but I don't believe that. My personal experience says this, so I'm going to leave all that over there. And it just gutted the gutted the church of any authority. You know, it's like, you know, here's what the scripture says, and it's like, well, who cares? And, you know, in my experience, I have found well, you that has no prophetic power anymore. And so out of Germany comes the father of liberal theology, and his name is Frederick Schleiermacher. And he's the founder of the University of Berlin. And so just to show you how wild this is. So he's, he's coming along right and around the same time with Kant, and he, he, says to, he writes a letter home to his father while he's at seminary. And listen to this letter and tell me, should this guy continue in seminary or should he find another job? He says, alas, dear father, if you believe that without this faith, no one can attain to salvation in the next world, nor to tranquility in this one, and such I know is your belief, Oh, then pray to God to grant it to me, for to me it is now lost. I cannot believe that he who called himself the Son of Man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. And so here you have this seminary student with a very real struggle, like writing home to dad saying, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't believe that Jesus was God. I don't believe that his death on the cross, you know, paid for sin. I don't, I don't believe any of that stuff. And so you would imagine, okay, that's 1787, you know, he's, he's going to become a, a baker or a farmer or a you know, cobbler, some other profession. But even after rejecting Jesus as God and, and all of that other stuff, he still chose to become a pastor and was permitted to do so at the time because the church had been so neutered of the truth, like it lost all of its power. And so the Protestant church, which had been founded with this exalted view of the scripture, sola scriptura, but here you have Schleiermacher who whittles away at the authority of scripture. He comes into the pulpit and he begins explaining that, well, you know, the earliest converts to Christianity— they weren't relying on the scriptures because the Gospels and the New Testament epistles hadn't even been written yet. Like you know, So before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sit down and write the Gospels, people were coming to faith and they didn't have scripture, so scripture must not be authoritative is what he reasoned, which is absurd. So he writes, in order to attain to faith, we need no such doctrine of scripture, and the attempt to force unbelievers into faith by means of it has had no success. And so stealing from philosophers like Kant and Descartes, who famously said, you know, I think therefore I am, and he's trying to reduce all truth to century experience too, who was before Kant even, this guy starts arguing that subjective internal experience with God trumped any objective external claims of truth that could be found in the Bible. And so this was a a new romantic epistemological principle. And like this cancer spread throughout German academia like wildfire. And so now all of a sudden in Germany, Christianity is not a system of absolutes and unchanging truths, it's an evolving way of life. The Bible's not inspired or inerrant or authoritative. All supernatural claims, including the resurrection, were now doubtful, Like So what's the point of Christianity at that point? And so despite all the obvious abandonment of Orthodox Christianity, this guy Schleiermacher is hired to serve as the professor of theology at the University of Halle and Wittenberg. This is the German city where Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door to launch the Reformation. Mm -hmm. This guy who now doubts basically all of the doctrines of Christianity is the professor of theology there. Like, think how far the church had to have fallen. And so eventually he relocates to Berlin where he helps to found the University of Berlin, and he's appointed to the Prussian Academy of Sciences that you'll remember Horace Mann was so infatuated with and like, oh, they're the best. They have the best education over there. Well, this is the kind of education they were pushing and in reality. And so in the coming century, the German and French theologians began exporting this brand of liberalism to other countries throughout Europe. And it was this high view of human reason. We've got it figured out. We know better than God. Emphasis on Personal experience and and tolerating divergent views within the church, and so you know if you if you want to say that there is no resurrection, you know who am I to say that that's wrong? You know, come on in. Well, we you could be a pastor and you could be a professor of theology, like and so there was this bend over backwards, you know, idea of you know keeping such an open mind that your brains fall out, kind of influence that that hits this European church and starts being exported to all the other places. So in other words, like what it did is it made man the ultimate judge of all things divine and essential doctrines of the faith were were treated like non-essentials. You had all these liberal theologians that were jumping to the same conclusion as the French atheist. You know, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre asked, you know, how can there be eternal truth if there's no eternal mind to think it, right? So that's the idea. Like you can't have an absolute eternal truth unless there's an eternal God who developed and instituted that eternal truth. But for the liberal theologians, it was like, okay, well, who cares even if there is a God? If there's an eternal truth, we can't know it because God chose not to share it with my experiences, and I can't fully comprehend it. And so, you know, we can't know absolute truth even if there is one. And so traditionally, Protestants viewed Scripture as a supernatural book that is what it claims to be, that it's a living and active book that pierces the hearts of men. It, it's, it, it has a supernatural authority to it. And the word is like it acts as a surgeon that brings resurrection to, to spirit, like really spiritual corpses that are dead in sin and trespasses. It is the authority that looks down on man and works in these dead bodies. But liberalism now, all of a sudden, is making man the surgeon, and now the Bible is the dead book on a desk, and it's being dissected by all these very proud and self-important arrogant theologians, and the traditional view of the faith was being totally stripped of any of its supernatural claims or powers. And so this stuff rages all throughout the church, and everybody begins to doubt everything, And so there's there's a great uh, old quip that says you know if you see through everything you see nothing you you follow like if everything is transparent you you never see anything, and so this created the skepticism not just among the atheists but uh, but among the people in the church, and so I love this it comes later but G K Chesterton it's a long quote but just listen to the brilliance of this quote when when you doubt that you can know anything like why even talk why even tell us that you can't know anything because if i can't know anything i can't know what you just said is certainly what you just said like it just it it creates doubt about everything and gk chesterton points out the stupidity of this argument in his book orthodoxy he writes the new rebel is a skeptic and he will not entirely trust anything and the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything for all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. The, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. So listen to this. These are a great series of, of, of examples. He says, as a politician, he'll cry out that war is a waste of life. And then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. As a Russian pessimist, he'll denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the present ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts, and then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality, and in his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. So brilliant, so good. I remember my old systematic theology professor, Robert Raymond, had this cute little poem about relative truth, right? He says, if relative truth is really true, then I am right, and so are you. Dogs can be cats, and green can be blue, and I can be God, and so can you. And it's pretty true. Like every single person gets to develop and create the reality in which they live. Everybody's entitled to their own truth. Everybody's entitled to their own reality. And you can see, like, good grief, this is the world that we now live in. Kant's views won the day, and they won the church. And so initially, like the American church had brief flashes of, of liberalism, but it never took root broadly until you got into the second half of the 1800s. And in the aftermath of Darwin's books, you know, during the second industrial revolution and in all the calls for social progress and everything else, the American church was overwhelmed by the fallout. And so they were desperate for a way to harmonize Darwin and the Bible. And guess what? Germany's liberal theology. Oh, well, it took root and it spread like wildfire. Like, you want to know uh, how to harmonize the Bible and to Darwin? Well, make the Bible able to be contorted into whatever you want it to say. That's how you harmonize it. And that's what the church did. We'll just make the Bible whatever we want it to say. You know, you, you can believe some things and you can toss out other things. And so, Germany's liberal theology took root and spread like wildfire in our seminaries and universities. And by the late 1800s, early 1900s, all the Protestant universities, the seminaries, the denominations were all plagued with these theological battles that traced their way back through the, the German seminaries and universities back to Immanuel Kant. And so let me give you an example. So Union Theological Seminary was founded in 1836 as this faithful Presbyterian seminary, really conservative, wonderful school, and then they start to drift. You know, you get to the late 19th century. In 1891, the seminary appoints a guy whose name is Charles Briggs to be the new chair of biblical studies. Okay, well, who's this guy? Well, let me give you a hint. He studied at the University of Berlin. This is where Schleiermacher was. Remember the guy who <laughs> you really didn't believe anything and is appointed a professor of theology. And so Briggs had studied at the University of Berlin, and when he's appointed as the chair of biblical studies, he comes and gives the inaugural address. Like, here I am, like, you know, I'm ready to lead the school. And he challenges the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible right out of the gates. In this speech, he claims that it's unwise and unchristian to force men to accept the divine authority of the Bible at a seminary, right? And you shouldn't question people who have doubts about inerrancy. We shouldn't believe that it's inerrant. And so listen to what he says in the speech. Imagine you're going to seminary. You want to become a pastor and your chair of biblical studies gets up and he says, the progress of criticism in our day has so undermined and destroyed the pillars of authority upon which former generations were wont to rest that agnosticism seems to many minds the inevitable result of scientific investigation. We cannot know God. We cannot be certain with regard to ultimate realities. Man cannot rise to the throne of the deity. He cannot see the invisible or know the transcendent. So the Presbyterian church looked at this and they were like, whoa, this is way out of bounds. And so they actually vetoed his appointment and sought to depose him, like remove him from this office. That was just, that was a bridge too far. And so Union Theological Seminary was like, okay, well, if the Presbyterian church is gonna be conservative and hold to biblical absolutes, then we're gonna sever all ties with the church. We're gonna become, and they become, a leading seminary of theological liberalism. And so you get another guy, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch. So he comes along and he's a liberal Baptist theologian at Rochester Theological Seminary. And he begins rejecting inerrancy and substitutionary atonement. And you get guys like this that are all over the seminaries and like he would write that the idea of divine justice, that God would have a right to determine who goes to heaven or hell, he says that was, quote, repugnant to human sensitivity, <laughs> right? Like, how dare God do that? Like, I'm, I'm going to sit in judgment of the, you know, the almighty God here. This is repugnant to my sensitivity, like just good grief. So beyond that, The second industrial revolution's creating all this greater optimism for mankind. Like we're gonna we're gonna prosper without the aid of the supernatural. We don't need God anymore. You know, after all, like if you're if you're living in that time in just five decades, you've seen you know the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States has produced the typewriter, the telephone, the phonograph, the incandescent light bulb. You're seeing skyscrapers and air conditioning and automobiles and airplanes and medicines coming out with new vaccines and X-rays and surgical techniques, and it just looks like humanity's going to perfect the world. We don't need God anymore. Like we're going to create heaven on earth. And in his 1907 book Christianity and the Social Crisis, this guy Rauschenbusch writes the millennium, meaning like the the when the early church was being born. The millennium was the Christian utopia, like the early church was just amazing. And it occupied the same place in the imagination and hope of that first generation of Christians, which the cooperative commonwealth, hear that? The collective socialist tones there. Well, they had that utopia and all that really wonderful imagination and hope back in the first century that we now have. In the fancies of modern socialists, he says. And so this begins to take on part of the identity of the church at the turn of the last century. Christian socialism becomes a big deal. In 1907, a decade before Russia's Bolshevik Revolution ushers in the first communist experiment, Rauschenbusch is referring to communism as the moral ideal of Christendom during the greater part of history. And he starts making the case like, of course, this is what the church should advocate. We need communism. And he believed in, quote, the coming transition of power from the possessing classes to the proletariat. And many prominent liberal theologians were eager to see experiments of Marxism here in government. The Bible comes and talks about safety nets, you know, allowing the poor to come and to, to be able to feed on your fields. And, you know, the, the year of Jubilee keeps, you know, generations in the Bible from experiencing generational poverty and restoring families. Like the Bible is definitely not opposed to social safety nets, but in the mind of the founders, Like they were like, you can't empower the Leviathan so much that it's going to gobble everything up because the only way that you can make that happen is to give that so much power. And so the founders wanted those things to be left to the localities, to the churches, to people who knew one another, empower the states like to decentralize those kinds of things. Liberal theology came and just started making all of the truths of the Bible, anything that was old and ancient, the constitution, the Bible, anything that had come before it as though it were arcane. And so Charles Spurgeon is living around this time and he's seeing the spread of the liberal church, you know, very famous Baptist minister of the 19th century. And he wrote this. He says, I love this quote. He says, Truth is neither your opinion nor mine, your message nor mine. Jesus says, Thy word is truth. And scripture alone is absolute truth, essential truth, decisive truth, authoritative truth undiluted truth, eternal and everlasting truth, truth given us, and the word of God is that which is to sanctify all believers to the end of time. God will use it to that end if this is the truth and the truth with which God sanctifies us. Let us learn it, hold it, and stand fast in it. Spurgeon was standing firm in this avalanche all around him, and so in 1910, the church in an attempt to guard against this, you know, advancing avalanche that's just decimating the church, they decide like conservative Presbyterians propose a list of five fundamentals to the Christian faith. And so these, this becomes a very, very famous debate, and it wasn't just for Presbyterians. All the denominations are watching this, and they suggested that any deviation from these five tenets would put people outside the bounds of authentic Christianity. And so they're really simple, actually. Number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Like if you're going to be a Christian, you believe the Bible is authoritative. Two, you believe in the virgin birth. Three, you believe that Jesus' death on the cross provided a substitutionary atonement. He died in your place to take your sin and to give you his righteousness. Four, a bodily resurrection on the third day because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we're still in our sin and the world is hopeless. And five, Jesus performed miracles. And so like, if you're, if you're a serious Christian, somebody who believes the scriptures, like this is, this is bottom shelf. Like this shouldn't be a problem. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the church in America is so split between the liberals that called themselves the modernist and the theological conservatives that called themselves the fundamentalist. And so i give you an example of part of this. In 1922, New York City pastor and union theological seminary graduate, Harry Emerson Fosdick, he preaches a sermon entitled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? The sermon called upon the church to, to infuse its doctrines with all the scientific knowledge and to, to make the scriptures kind of contort to fit the prevailing winds of the day. And he claimed that Christianity was closed minded with its claims of absolutes. And he, I mean, he proudly admitted that he would have been branded a heretic by any traditional standards. If he lived any other time, he'd have been a heretic. And so he claimed, you know, like things like this. He claimed Jesus was divine. In the same way that all of us are divine, only different by degree. And so, after the sermon gets retitled, John D. Rockefeller Jr. pays to have the sermon printed and distributed to 130,000 ordained pastors throughout the nation. And you can see, like, there's a war going on for the soul of the church. It's very, very clear during this time. The momentum is on the side of liberalism, unquestionably. And though public opinion was shifting, there's a handful of faithful theologians who are waging a fierce counterattack to defend orthodoxy. And so, in his 1923 book, Christianity and Liberalism, a guy named J. Gresham Machin, who's, who's a bold hero of, of the, the scriptures, he's a New Testament professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and that seminary is facing a civil war. He just comes out and he argues liberal Christianity is no Christianity at all. He says, liberalism is totally different from Christianity for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. And I gotta say, he's right. Like once you have a faith that is removed from the Bible, you may have some kind of faith, but it is not Christianity anymore. Sadly, the most significant event that starts to mold public opinion and this debate comes in 1925 and it's the scopes monkey trial this is all at the height of these theological battles and america's education system and everything all of this like the scopes monkey trial takes center stage and it becomes bigger than the oj trial bigger than anything we've seen like in our modern time everybody's watching foreign nations are sending people to cover the trial the courtroom is packed with reporters and so here's the background John T. Scopes was had been fined uh, for admitting to teaching evolution inside a Tennessee classroom so that's that had become a violation of Tennessee state law they had banned teaching that humans descended from lower orders of creatures right so that's a state law and so in the trial that's gaining nationwide attention you have A prosecutor, William Jennings Bryant, he's defending the law, prohibiting the teaching of of evolution, and he's squaring off against Clarence Darrow, who's coming from the ACLU. You remember ACLU founded by Roger Baldwin, you know, openly communist founder, wanting to push the nation in a new direction. So Clarence Darrow comes in, paid for by the ACLU, to defend the teacher. In his teaching of evolution, so the entire trial is this publicity stunt, and it's a great battle between the modernist and the fundamentalist. And like the fundamentalist, quickly that that term became almost a pejorative, right? Still to this day, if you say, "Oh, he's a fundamentalist," it sounds like he's going to go bomb something now, you know. But remember, the fundamentals are basic. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe Jesus performed miracles. I believed he raised from the dead. Like these aren't radical things but they were being painted as radicals in society in those days. And so the lawsuits funded by the ACLU scopes, isn't even the real teacher. He's a substitute who steps in that day just to pick a fight, to deliberately challenge the law. And the, you know, this, the the record on that's clear. And the courtroom is packed with reporters that understand that to win the opinions of the American people, you've got to tell a story. You've got to, you got to craft a narrative. And so You know, like this should have been absurd. Like by modern days, if I told you, you know, this is what this guy was teaching. Let me give you an example. The textbook that this guy was teaching from is called A Civic Biology and it's by George Hunter. And in it is comes all the scientific justifications for overt racism that we've talked about before in our episode on Darwin. So the section on evolution, listen to this. It claims that there were five races of humanity at varying stages of evolutionary development. And, of course, the black people are listed first on the bottom. And it goes on and, and then it says, until you reach, quote, the highest type of all the caucasians represented by civilized white inhabitants of europe and america this is in the textbook you wonder why like tennessee wants this this book out because it yields all kinds of disturbing ideas and philosophies in the hearts of men if you're not made in the image of god and if all of humanity doesn't bear the spark of the divine we're just creatures Crazy things happen. And so you have the ACLU who runs in and says, no, this should be taught in the public schools. And you have William Jennings Bryant and the others that are squaring off against them. And the reality is, the narrative that went out was that the fundamentalists were humiliated. Of course, the courts are packed with people on their side, reporters on their side, like H.L. Mencken, perhaps the, the, the most famous journalist of the era. Is eagerly mocking, like the town residents. He's writing that they're yokels and morons. Uh, and he calls, listen to this, the, the speeches of William Jennings Bryant. He says it's nothing more than theological bilge. And not surprisingly, Mencken is a vocal atheist. Like he wrote this one of the most irrational of all the conventions of modern society is that religious opinions should be respected. Like, How stupid to respect religious opinions. You feel that today? Even though he was hostile toward Christianity, he also recognized the absurdity of liberal theology and its abandonment of the claim of absolutes. Like, Listen to this, because he he actually gets the absurdity of it, and he makes my argument, so I'm going to let him talk. He says, the Catholics get rid of the difficulty by setting up an infallible pope and consenting formally to accept his verdicts. So you want to know what truth is? Listen to the Pope. He tells you he's infallible and there, there is your standard. But then he says, the Protestants simply chase their own tails. By depriving revelation, scripture, of all force and authority, they rob their so-called religion of every dignity. It becomes in their hands a mere romantic imposture. It's unsatisfying to the pious and is totally unconvincing to the judicious. Amen, Mencken. Preach, brother atheist. (laughs) So by the end of the Scopes trial, it's clear that liberal theology has won the public debate. In fact, the same church, the Presbyterian denomination that first wrote the five fundamentals, this is the Presbyterian church, in 1927, they voted to rescind them. They were no longer considered essential and necessary doctrines. And so with Christianity stripped of any, any supernatural power, the churches and the congregants began to focus on, you know, okay, well, if there's if there's nothing supernaturally powerful about our faith, let's just focus on this world. And so you saw a sharp shift to social justice issues. Liberals began painting fundamentalists as extremist Christians on the fringe of society, um, and as we've seen, like still to this day, those efforts were successful, even though society was disenchanted with fundamentalism. The theologically liberal seminaries weren't producing any compelling or profound teachings. They were powerless. Like, what what point is there to go to a seminary and learn that you can't know God or you don't have any insight into his his teachings? The scriptures can't be trusted. Why bother going? So conservatives are decisively defeated in the theological wars of the early 1900s, and especially in the northern states. So by the end of the 1920s. Proponents of theological liberalism had taken control of all the mainline denominations, all the seminaries, all the publishing houses, and conservatives were forced to start forming separatist movements, forming all new denominations and brand new seminaries. And uh, the liberal churches at that at that point became known as the mainline denominations. And they got that name because in Philadelphia, there were a bunch of these denomination churches peppered all along what was called the mainline railway track, which is now the Keystone Corridor. And so they also became known as the Seven Sisters. And so these big mainline churches that started abandoning the fundamentals were the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, the American Baptist Churches, United Church of Christ, and the Christian Church, which is Disciples of Christ. You may have heard it. And so... Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes over here, you know, the the church is falling into liberalism. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the most famous, you know, he, he was martyred for standing up against Hitler, but he came and attended Union Theological Seminary, you know, the liberal flagship in 1930. And he wrote home and he says, there's no theology here. They're not. Familiar with even the most basic questions. They become intoxicated with liberal and humanistic phrases. They're amused at the fundamentalist, and yet, basically, they're not even up to their level. And so, J. Gresham Machin, who is at Princeton, and when Princeton started drifting and, and falling into liberalism, there was a massive split, and they went off and formed a different seminary, Westminster. But he warns when he sees that all the nation is falling into this liberalism, Listen to what he warns. He says a public school system, if it means the providing of free education for those who desire it, is a noteworthy and it's a beneficent achievement of our modern times. But once it becomes monopolistic, it is the most perfect instrument for tyranny which has yet been devised. Freedom of thought in the Middle Ages was combated by the Inquisition, but this modern method is far more effective. And so he saw that the same thing that was happening in the churches and in the seminaries, this, this hostility toward God was going to filter down and take over the public schools, and good grief, he was right. And so like today, you, you see the utter decline of these mainline denominations. Uh, the Episcopal Church USA, I remember um, when I first became a Christian being totally confused when the Episcopal Church Ordained its first openly gay bishop and celebrated it. All the mainline denominations Episcopalians, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Quakers, the United Church of Christ, all those big mainlines they've ordained gay and lesbian pastors. Today, homosexual weddings can be performed in a number of these places. And like they're just, it's, they're emptying out. United Methodist Church, like more than 6,000 local congregations, have voted to part ways with the United Methodist Church because it's becoming increasingly clear that leadership in the church isn't holding the scriptures as authoritative. Some of these churches, like the Presbyterian Church USA, actually lobbied against legislation recently that would prohibit sexual reassignment surgeries for minors. Like churches are doing this. The United Church of Christ. After the, the court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, like put put out a statement, listen to what they said. They said, We proclaim that Mary's informed, joyful choice to bear a child is the first act of Christian discipleship. And then listen to this. And that forced birth is an act of sexual violence antithetical to the incarnation itself. So like they're saying, the fact that God became a man, a baby, and a womb, and was born by Mary's choice, like to force a birth is an act of sexual violence. A 2017 Gallup survey found that a majority of people in these mainline denominations find premarital sex to be morally acceptable, even though the Bible's absolutely clear on that. The same survey shows that these members find same-sex relationships to be morally acceptable, even though the scriptures are very clear on that. They're split on abortion like and, and as a result, like what's happening when it's obvious that a denomination is detaching itself from the authority of scripture, why bother being a part of it? When you're looking for something, when you go to church, you want to be a part of a church that has that's giving you hope from a dimension that's not in this world. This world is filled with brokenness and hurt and pain and misery. Like I don't want any more of that. I want to come and hear a message from another realm. I want to come and hear from an authority that is outside of this world. And if you're just going to come and give me more human wisdom from a pastor, like, no thanks, I'll stay home. I am not interested. I mean, it's like it's like a deep sea diver that goes underwater with an air hose and he brings both ends down with him. Like, And you say, so you're just sucking water. Like, I, I, I'll die if I only get water. I need that air tube to reach into another realm where I can get life. And the liberal churches have totally abandoned the idea that there is a supernatural authority to the word that is authoritative that human beings cannot change. And so... They're cratering. The United Methodist Church from 1960. Look, listen to what has happened to these once wonderful denominations. Like this should grieve us, but the United Methodist Church has fallen 40% from 10.8 million in 1960 to six and a half million today. Forty percent. The Episcopalian Church has cratered 51%. The Presbyterian Church USA fell 74% from 1960. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has fallen 38%. The United Church of Christ has plummeted 63%. And if you want to know what churches have grown, and they're not doing as well as they should be doing, but like the Southern Baptist Convention has grown from 1960s, 9.73 million people to 13.22 million today. Why? Why? Because they fought to hold the convictions that the scriptures are authoritative. And I mean, this is a constant battle that they're always engaged in. Every year there's a tax on this idea. The Assemblies of God, you know, very charismatic denomination that holds a high view of the authority of scripture, went from 509,000 members in 1960 to 2.93 million in 2021. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, which split away from the, P- the Presbyterian Church USA, had less than 100,000 members in 1980. We got 382,000 now. And so there's this emptying out of the mainline denominations because there's no hope there. There's no authentic teaching of heavenly wisdom coming in there. And so Ryan Birch, who's a, a data analyst, expert on church membership, he says this, and this is, this is interesting. He says it's twice as likely for a mainline Protestant to become an evangelical these days than for an evangelical to leave to go to a mainline tradition church. And we shouldn't be surprised. Why, why would anyone want to be a part of a church that has divorced itself apart from the authority of God's word? People are desperate for a word from another realm and they want that word to be authoritative. We've seen all the wisdom that this world can muster and it has produced genocides, and desperation, and hatred, and division. We need a word from another world. We need to be in touch with our designer. We need to hear his voice. We do not need the opinions of men. I'll close with this. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, How Shall We Then Live?, says this, if there is no absolute moral standard then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies to all people, that which provides a final or ultimate standard. There must be an absolute if there are to be morals. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. And sadly, that is where America finds itself today. And I would argue that since America, the American church, the worldwide church, the the Western church for sure, has walked away from the call to be the salt, to preserve a world that is falling into decay, when we gave away That role as a church, we bear responsibility for the waves of evil that have overtaken our world. And so when you ask the question, how did we get here? In a word, it's because the church fell asleep and gave up the sacred nature of the scriptures and looked to the opinions of men. And since the American church has forfeited its role to be the prophetic voice to keep culture from falling into rot. And humanists and atheists have come to fill the void. And next time on the Out of Water Podcast, we're going to look at America's decline into secular humanism. Join us then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included Epic Hero and the Inspiration by Keys of Moon, Tragedy and Reporting from the Scene by Max Music, Adrift Among Infinite Stars by Scott Buckley, The Entertainer by Scott Joplin, and Ochenberg by Speria. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, Riovistachurch.com.